Jay, let's go. Got things to do, man. Got things to do. Hey everybody, I'm Kyle Rizdal. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. It is August the 1st. And I'm Kimberly Adams. Thank you for joining us on our weekly deep dive. Today we're going to talk about the economics of higher education in this country because there's a lot more to it than the ultra-high sticker prices of some of the private schools um, that our headlines tend to focus on. So we want to talk about what it actually costs uh, to go to college these days, uh, what demographics mean for the changing cost of college and who goes to college and what higher education actually means uh, in this economy. Here to make us smart about all this stuff is Martin Kurzweil. He's the vice president of educational transformation in a job title, says a whole lot. Educational transformation at the mm -hmm. education nonprofit Ithaca S&R. Martin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let me get right to this educational transformation thing. Um, so in your day job, when you're not on random podcasts talking about education costs and policy, what does that mean, educational transformation? Well, my organization has a mission to improve equitable post-secondary access and success. And uh, with changes in demographics, changes in uh, the business model of higher education, that requires some pretty significant transformation on the part of the institutions that serve our students. Hmm. So we help them go through those transformations. <laughs> hmm. When did college sort of stop becoming affordable for most people? Well, uh, we saw a very substantial increase in tuition fees and other costs at colleges beginning in the 1990s. And it really increased rapidly the, the pace of change, the pace at which costs of college uh, uh, outran inflation increased substantially in the 2000s. But we've actually seen a bit of a moderation in that trend over the past 10 years. So it's a pretty mm -hmm. nuanced story. Well, so, so let's dig in a little bit. Uh, first of all, why did higher education costs go up so much in the 90s and 2000s? Well, uh, at root, it's because of uh, the substantial increase in the number of people attending college that occurred during that period. So we really had a, uh, an explosion in access to college that began in the 1990s and accelerated in the 2000s. But unfortunately, as uh, the doors to higher education were open to many more students, public financing of higher education did not keep pace. And so the state appropriations in particular per student enrolled really declined quite a bit during that period. Um, at the same time, federal support for students, um, mainly the federal Pell Grant, which goes to lower income students, uh, really didn't keep pace with, with inflation. And so you had a a combination of many more people enrolling and needing that support uh, in order to make it affordable and less money coming from the government to, uh, to support them. Right. Can you say more about sort of that um, change in state and federal support for higher education? Because this comes up so much in sort of the generational warfare language, it's particularly when it comes to sort of student loan forgiveness and, you know, 
some people will say, oh, well, it's your fault for taking on the debt and, you know, you should be able to do this on your own. And then younger people will say, well, you all got to go to college for almost nothing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there really has been a shift in the attitude uh, on the part of a lot of policymakers towards the funding of higher education. Um, you know, as as you described, it, it, it used to be... Uh, conceived of as sort of a, a public investment that uh, providing affordable higher education was something that not only benefited the people who attended, but benefited society. And there was a shift in the 1980s, 1990s, um, you know, along with a lot of other uh, shifts in our perspectives on policy towards a more neoliberal type bent, um, where the conception shifted to more of a of a of a private benefit and um primarily being about the people attending and almost treating them as a consumer of education as a, as opposed to a public benefit and if you're a consumer of higher education and the benefit is mostly to you then it kind of makes sense to shift the burden of paying for it to the consumer as well how much of the so, so here's, here's my, my going in presumption, and you correct me since you're the subject matter expert in this conversation. I'm guessing that we're talking about, and I'm pulling this number out of thin air, the, the, the top 20% most competitive colleges and universities in this economy that have become most unaffordable. And the remaining 80% are still reasonably affordable. Is that fair? That's fair in general. Um, the cost of attending a public two-year college, a community college, or attending a public university is still uh, quite a bit lower um, in most cases than the cost of attending a private nonprofit university mm -hmm. um, or liberal arts college. Um, but, but the price uh, during that, that period from the 90s to the 2000s when we saw rapid increases, the prices at those public institutions increased at a much faster rate than at the mm. private nonprofit institutions. So, uh, so just to put some concrete numbers on it, between 1992 and 93 and 2002-2003 academic years, um, the price, the published price of a public four-year institution increased on average 37% above inflation. Mm. Um, between 2002 and 2012, it increased by 65% above inflation. So the so the, there was really a huge run up in the costs of the public institutions uh, during that period, even while they remain more affordable in, in most mm -hmm. cases than the private nonprofits. Gotcha. gotcha. How does the cost of college here in the U.S. compare to what students are paying in other countries? Well, I don't have as... as any personal experience with uh, the cost of college in other countries, but my um, my understanding is that the the price is much lower. It's it's still in most uh, European countries in uh, in much of the world. Um, there's still that sort of public investment uh, concept, and so the the cost is quite affordable. Another important difference is that we have a sizable share of college students who are paying for room and board um, and, and other living expenses 
uh, on top of their tuition and fees. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's a bit unusual when you look in a global context. Uh, a lot of undergraduate students um, in other countries are living at home. Hmm. That's interesting. You mentioned demographics as we were beginning this conversation. What what effect has the has the you know aging of the baby boomer and getting out of that population and now millennials and Gen Z? What's that doing to the to the education cost calculus? Yeah. So I mentioned earlier that the trend of college costs outpacing inflation inflation has really moderated in the past few years, and the demographic changes that we've seen over the past uh, decade or so are really an important uh, reason for that. So um, so demographers will tell us that uh, the generations of young people coming through after the baby boom have, uh, you know, the, the cohort sizes have decreased um, over time. And higher education is looking what's at what's come to be known as a demographic cliff. Um, in some states, they're already facing it. In the Northeast, in the Midwest, um, the uh, cohort sizes for high school graduating classes have, have really shrunk quite a bit. But the, the whole country is really facing that in, in the coming years. Um, in addition to that, uh, we ha- the economy, of course, plays a role in how many uh, how many people attend college? If you have an opportunity mm-hmm, to get mm-hmm. a good job, a well-paying job, um, uh, without going to college, then a lot of people take up that opportunity and defer college, or or in some cases drop out of college. And we've seen um, that happening as well over the past uh, five to ten years as the labor market has tightened up. What all of that has meant is that. From uh, 2012-13, which was really the the peak of enrollment in the U.S. to today, we've seen a decrease of about 2 million enrolled students from 19 million to about 17 Mm. million. Mm. So that's a a pretty substantial decrease in the number of people enrolled. At the same time as that's been happening, um, public investment in higher education has started to catch up. So uh, really beginning um, uh, after the trough of the Great Recession, state investment in, um, in higher education has been ticking up and the federal Pell Grant has uh, increased, especially in the past few years. And so you're seeing almost the inverse of the combo trend that I described earlier, the population enrolled in college is shrinking at the same time that the public investments are going up. And so the costs have begun to moderate a bit. Well, let's continue that hopeful note. Do you suppose that that um, while while not ever being fixed to the satisfaction of most of the school going public, right, because college is expensive, <laughs> um, do you think the trend continues and it becomes, if not more affordable, then certainly less unaffordable? I think that trend is likely to continue for um, some period of time. Uh, you know, I I do think that we're seeing at right now and over the next few years, we're going to be seeing a pretty substantial shift in uh, the emphasis of of higher education. 
And it kind of comes back to the demographics. So as the pool of prospective college students in high school graduating classes declines, um, the colleges that really depend on enrollment for their economic survival are going to be looking elsewhere for students. And at the same time as that, you have a lot of adults, uh, older learners, who Mm -hmm. um, either never attended college or attended but never graduated and don't have that credential, who are going to be looking to get some kind of uh, higher education credential to boost their careers. Right now in the U.S., there are almost 41 million people who have earned some college credits but don't have a degree. And Mm. a lot of those folks will be looking to get back in the game. So Mm -hmm. I think um, the the colleges and universities are going to be responding to that. And what uh, the new population of college students, um, if you will, are looking for uh, tends to be um, programs that are more directly career focused, that are shorter that are more right. flexible and that kind of lines up with lower cost as well. Well, let's hope so. Martin Kurzweil uh, is the Vice President of Educational Transformation at the education nonprofit Ithaca S&R. Martin, thanks for your time. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank, thank you. you so much for having me. Thank you. Yeah, I think uh, I think less unaffordable is what I'm shooting for. That's where I'm going. Yeah. <laughs> you you almost it's almost as if you have a personal stake in this guy. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've got one and a half more personal stakes left to pay for it. That's all I'm saying. Oh, my Lord. You know, uh, my parents um, told me in, in high school that if I got scholarships, I could go to school anywhere I wanted in the world. And if right. I didn't, they would pay to send me to any community college in St. Louis. There you go. There you go. And, uh, well, you know. Yeah, it was. And also, um, you know, I I was very upset that I ended up going to school in state and I turned out all right. But um <laughs> I, you know, just the horror stories I've heard over the years of people who did end up taking out a lot oh, of yeah. student loans. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I almost wonder if, you know, some of that cliff of the these declining cohorts that he yeah. was talking about, you know, are just people terrified of what they've seen of sure. people burdened with student totally. loan debt for life. Uh, totally. Because it is terrifying. It's just a, it's an insane amount of money. Uh, let yeah. us know what you think, would you? If you are a parent paying for your kid's tuition or if you are a student doing it on your own, uh, we'd like to hear about your story. Give us a shout. Our number is 508-827-6278, 508-UB-SMART. Or you can email us the old-fashioned way, makemesmart at marketplace.org. We will be right back. Okay, time for some news. I'll go first because mine is also generational, like the conversation that we were just having. Um, I saw this story. Well, actually, it's some research from the Center for Retirement Research at Boston College looking at the wealth of late boomers. So Mm. late boomers being people who 
apparently were the first generation that their entire retirement was when 401ks existed. So earlier boomers, you know, maybe you had a pension or some other defined benefit plan and late boomers were pretty much all in the um, contribution plans like, you know, 401ks. And so they have a lot significantly less wealth in their retirement than the earlier cohorts. And they went go into all of these, the researchers go into all these reasons why. There's a couple of reasons. Number one, um, because of demographics, again, there's mm-hmm. a declining share. I'm just going to read from the brief, brief, brief's key findings. Part of the drop is due to the decline in share of late boomers who are white, married, and have college degrees. And that's reflective of um, just the demographic change in America. And since people who are white, married, and have college degrees tend to have more wealth, that that number declining means that therefore the wealth is declining. The main factor, though, is that late boomers saw a weakening in the link between work and and wealth due to the Great Recession, which I think Mm. is so fascinating. This idea that, you know, back in the day, you could work and work and work and work and see your income increasingly go up, and therefore what you had to contribute to retirement would go up. But because the Great Recession hit as a lot of the late boomers were heading into retirement, they missed out on some of that, and therefore you know, they kind of plateaued with their earnings and maybe didn't Mm -hmm. see as much earning growth towards the end. And so that's affected their long-term wealth. Super interesting paper. And uh, we will have a link to it on the show Mm. notes. Yeah. Demographics or destiny? Is destiny? I guess demographics is destiny. Anyway. Uh, Mm. Okay. So here's mine. Um, It's it's somewhat discouraging and a little bit wonky, but it goes like this. There's a piece in Bloomberg, and I'm just going to read you the nut graph here. As the world reels from the mounting impact of heat waves, droughts, and fiercer storms, there is growing concern that credit rating analysts are misreading climate risks in the $133 trillion global bond market. So bonds, of course, IOUs, what you pay to borrow money. The U.S. government does it. Companies do it. Sovereign, uh, other sovereign nations do it. It is a giant pool of money, if I can coin a phrase, uh, $133 trillion, uh, as I just said. And we are misreading climate risk. We are not Mm -hmm. understanding how challenging climate risk will be. And I will go back to something I said on this podcast like a week ago. I really hope this summer is going to get people to pay attention. Governments, but also credit analysts, right? How are one's eyes not opened by what has been going on the last, I don't know, 90 days? Right? I think that it's when they're willfully shut. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Um, I was I'm looking up, trying to find the article. Um, you know, <laughs> Yellen, uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, was saying last week about that she expects more insurance companies to be um, right. thinking very carefully about what, what they will and will not pay. Uh, the headline in Insurance Journal... Yellen says extreme weather exposes gaps in insurance protection and that it's going to, uh, you know, harm Americans seeking insurance against property losses. And so, yeah, it's going to be continue to be an issue is an issue. Okay, that's it for the news. Let's do the mailbag. 
Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. All right, I have been, or was last week, I don't know if I've been lately, but I certainly was last week, a little ranty, a little, uh, you know, disgruntled old man-ish uh, about how heavy the news has been, how not great the news has been, uh, and how important it is to unplug if you can. Uh, and that got some comments. Here is Ryan. Hey, Kai and Kimberly. So I'm listening to uh, Kai's rant coming back from the camp shower at the State <laughs> Recreation Area in northern Minnesota where I happen to have been escaping my life for the last, well, so far, day and a half. <laughs> Just wanted to let you know that, yes, absolutely, Kai, you are 100% spot on. We all need to walk away and disconnect for some time. And, you know, getting 200 miles away from home and wandering around a section of the state where you live that you haven't explored is, uh, is a bit of a good idea. So... Yeah, Kai, you're spot on. And thank you both for making us smart. I'm just going to say, I'm just going to mm. say the best part of that I whole thing the sound effects. was the, sh the, sour, the shower shoes. The shower yes, shoes yes. flop, 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 flopping. <laughs> oh, man. Amazeballs. And I think it, it sticks with our theme that, you know, getting into nature is really such a great way to reset yeah. Um, yeah. and to give your mind a little rest. Yeah. All right. And here's one more about coping with news fatigue. Lee here in Austin, Texas. And as you can hear by my accent, I'm a born and bred Texan. Now, your recent discussion on the news feeling overwhelming is something I've felt for a while. So these days, I have a happy medium of only catching up on news websites over coffee on Sunday, but supplementing this with one or two daily podcasts uh, hosted by friendly folks with a sense of humor who can can explain why things are the way they are. And honestly, that's the reason why I listen to uh, Make Me Smart. As a side note, you would be amazed at the news stories that trickle through from your coworkers and even more amazed at the ones that don't. Oh my gosh, the Marketplace Slack channels are certainly, certainly proof of that. Um, but we got to get out of here. All right, so before you go, we are going to leave you, as we always do, with this week's answer to the Make Me Smart question. What is something you thought you knew but later found out you were wrong about? Today's answer comes from Adriana in San Antonio, Texas. The one thing that I always thought I knew, and it turned out that I was wrong, was that it truly doesn't matter where you get your bachelor's degree from. I was under the impression that in order for you to be respected, it needed to come from Harvard or, or in Texas here at UT Austin. Um, now that I'm older and I'm working for a company, I've been able to get them to pay for it through an online university. So pretty good, right? I think so. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's true to a certain extent. I mean, mm. I think it matters for some fields where you go if there's like particular expertise in something. But yeah, for the most part, you know, go where you got to go. We're going to pick up the skills in the workplace anyway. Yeah. Um, but anyway, we want to hear your answer to the Make Me Smart question. Our number is 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART. Make Me Smart is produced by Courtney Bergseeker. Ellen Rolfes writes our newsletter. Today's program 
was engineered by the one, the only, Jay Seabold. Becca Weinman's going to mix it down later. Our intern is Neelafar Shabandi. Ben Tolliday and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our senior producer is Marissa Cabrera. Bridget Bodner is the director of podcast. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital. And Marketplace's vice president and general manager is Neil Scarborough.